today I want us to, to look at some things. The thing I have noticed is people, I have gotten more questions sent to me, asked to me since I've been preaching on grace than any, really I'd probably say the rest of my ministry put together. Now sometimes I think the church tries to answer questions that people are not asking. You ever tried to do that? Try that with your kids, see how that goes down. Listen, if they're not asking the question, they're probably not wanting the answer. And, uh, but we're going we're to talk about that, and there's no way I'm going to get this done today because I'm going to jump on something really big. Uh, but, but we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, and I hope you don't all take off next Sunday because it's close to the 4th. It's not the 4th, so it's the 2nd, so get your behinds here. Hallelujah. But, uh, you know, two, two men were talking. I know you're standing. Hang on just a second. But two men were having a conversation. They were sitting in town. They were, they were talking, and one man said to the other man, I want to make a bet with you. And the guy said, okay, uh, what, what is it? He said, I want to ask a question myself. I'm going to ask a question, and if I answer it, then you buy me a cup of coffee. And the second guy said, what now? You're going to ask, you're going to ask the question, and you're going to answer it, and if you answer it, then I buy you a cup of coffee. He said, yes. The man said, that doesn't sound like a very good bet. And he said, well, it works the same for you. Then after I ask the question and I answer it, then you ask a question, and if you answer it, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And he goes, man, that is the strangest, weirdest bet I've ever heard, but, you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll do it with you, but uh, you proposed it, so you go first. So the first man says, here's my question. My question is, he says, uh, how can a uh, rabbit burrow a hole deep, deep into the ground without throwing dirt on the outside. And he said, here's my answer, that he must burrow from the inside to the outside. And the second man said, how can he do that? He said, I don't know, that's your question. <laughs> Guess who got the cup of coffee? Listen, listen, life is a series of questions. And as soon as you're old enough to speak, you start asking questions. Why? What? Where? How? And listen, if you have gotten old enough that you don't ask questions any longer, that is an indication that something inside of you has died. It's the very nature of us to ask questions. God wired us that way. And there are certain questions that the answers to by which will give us a proper biblical worldview. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for the grace of God in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I pray for that power to be released today that transforms people's lives forever. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said amen. amen. You can be seated. I never even put any attention or energy on trying to discover this, but I did quite extensively yesterday, and, and uh, this is what I found out. The gospel recorded Jesus asking 307 questions in the gospels. Jesus asked 307 separate and distinct questions. People asked Jesus in the gospels 183 questions. Very few to which, by the way, he responded to because they were ingenuine questions. And so, but seemingly, Jesus' favorite question was this. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? That's the only question he repeated over and over in the Gospels. And he asked that question, what do you think, seven times. Seven times. One of those times was in Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. That whole 22nd chapter of Matthew is nothing primarily but them asking him questions. They ask him the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar in that, in that setting? They ask him, what about if a man is married and then has a wife and then, and then uh, she dies and then he marries again and, or he dies and she marries again and then so forth and so on and she's been married like five times when she gets to heaven, who's, you know, whose wife will she be? So what they were asking him about was the resurrection, trying to hem him up. Uh, and Jesus told him, he said, you do err, you do, you're mistaken. He said, you don't even know the word of God nor the power of God. You've never known it, either one of them. And, uh, and so then 
they just kept bombarding him with questions. In verse 41, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? There's probably no more important question in the Bible than that one. What do you think about the Christ? If I went around this room with the microphone and I walked up to each, each individual and says, what do you think about the Christ? Look what he says, whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Boy, he really tangled him up there. And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You know why they didn't want to answer that? They could have answered it. But if they had answered that, they would have had to admit it in that moment that you're God. That you're God. We're talking to God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. You are God. That's the only way that David could also, he could be a son of David and David yet also call him Lord. And they were not willing to admit that he was God. That happened to Jesus a lot when the rich young ruler come running up to Jesus in one of the Gospels. Remember, and he fell down in front of him and he, he started really worshiping him. And he said, good master, a teacher, a rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you know what the, the law says. And he started enumerating what the law says to him. And that guy was so arrogant that he said, I've done all of that from my youth. And I'm so amazed at that passage. I even read it last night. It's not in my notes, but it says Jesus looking at him loved him. Number one, the guy's a liar. He ain't, no way he kept the law since he was from his youth, all the things that Jesus enumerated. No way. But Jesus just, he said, you lack one thing then. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then come and follow me. And the Bible said that he turned and walked away and went away sorrowfully because he had a lot of stuff. He had many possessions. He had many possessions. See, Jesus told him, he said, why do you call me good? He said, good master, what must I do? He said, why do you call me good? Because Jesus says this. He said, no one is good but God. You know what that guy wasn't willing to do? Same thing his Pharisees wasn't willing to do. He wasn't willing to admit that, that Jesus was God. Some people have even stupidly used that as a passage to say that Jesus was saying that he was not God. That's a spirit of dumbness upon people that don't know the word of God. Jesus was actually saying, I am God. Are you willing now at this point, because you've called me good, and I've told you there is nobody good but God, are you willing to recognize me as God? He wasn't willing to recognize him as God. See, you've got to recognize God as who he is. The greatest and clearest expression we have of God is in Jesus Christ. You agree with that? Jesus, I want to tell you, what you think about Jesus determines everything in your life. Even if you think he doesn't exist, even if you think he's not real, even if you think he's, he was just a good teacher, but whatever your opinion is, what do you think about the Christ? I would assure you that not everybody in this room agrees about what they think about Christ. Jesus Christ, what do you think about him? Whose son is he? How is he? What is he? Jesus is the channel of all grace. He, only through Jesus is God's grace made available to mankind. Only through Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no grace of God. The, the cross is the basis of the offer of grace, and we receive that offer by faith and not by works, not by anything that you and I do. Nobody, include me, listen, nobody can truly, really explain grace. Nobody. I try every Sunday. But nobody can really explain the grace of God. It's unexplainable. And I'll tell you something that may shock you. The Bible never gives an explanation of grace. So don't try to figure one out. Just be willing to receive by faith the measureless grace of God, the unexplainable grace of God, the inexhaustible grace of God. Man, I tell you what, one reason I don't watch any kind of Christian television is I can't take it. Not because I think I'm right and they're all wrong, but... That's got a lot to do with it. Um, <laughs> I am amazed at what times that I do hear preachers preaching. And sometimes they're preaching over Facebook, and sometimes they're preaching on television or radio. And I'm amazed that the way some preachers preach, they preach like the cross hasn't really changed anything. The, the, the system of being blessed when you do good and being cursed when you fail, 
That system was already in place before Jesus ever came. And, and so why are they still preaching that same system? Why are they still preaching the law today? Even Listen, even though the Apostle Paul said that the law is holy, just, and good, the law has no power in itself to make us holy, just, and good. Only when you place your faith in God's grace do you have any possible way to be made holy, to be made justified righteous before God. You agree with that? Say amen. So my sermon title is, What's Your Worldview? So I guess we have to answer what a worldview is. It's really pretty simple. Your worldview is the way you look at the world. The lens by which you view the entirety of the world, your world, is your worldview. It's the beliefs that you base all of your decisions on, your worldview. Your worldview is how you see life, how you see your past, present, and future, how you see death, how you see yourself. How you see the Bible, how you see God, how you see others, that's your worldview. And everybody has a worldview, whether you, they realize it or not, everybody has a worldview. And it's often unclarified, it's often unspoken, but everyone has one. Christianity, listen, is not a religion. Jesus did not come to earth to start a religion called Christianity. Christianity is a worldview. This is not some academic exercise that we're in. It's not some intellectual theory or some philosophical concept that we're involved in. This is the most practical, pragmatic thing in your life. Your, your worldview determines all of your relationships. It determines your successes. It determines your failures. It determines, listen, your goals, your motivations. It determines what you will even attempt to do in life. All of the things that are influenced by your worldview... All of those things, if, if you're ever going to change your life, you're going to have to change your worldview. The Bible talks to, uh, uses this word repent. Now, I would say to you that most Christians, the average Christian hears the word repent, first thing that pops in their mind is sin. And that's the wrong way to think. The word repent, metanoia is the Greek word, metanoia means to think differently. That bothers some people because they grew up saying repent means to turn from sin. It did in the Old Testament. You turned from sin. But in the New Testament, repentance means turning to God. You don't have to worry about sin. It's been taken care of by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. What you need to do is turn to God. Listen, and when you've turned to God, you have automatically turned from sin. So you don't have to be sin conscious or sin focused. Just be Jesus focused. Look unto Him, the author and the finisher of your faith. Don't look and worry about sin. There are questions to which, depending on how you answer them, these questions form your worldview. And really, you can boil them down to four areas. I'm not saying four questions, but to four areas. Number one, origin. Say origin. Number two, meaning. Number three, morality. And number four, destiny. So origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, those four areas will determine your worldview. So origin, what, what is that? Where did I come from? Where did I come from? These are some really, really tough questions. But I promise you, everybody in here has thought about these questions. You would love to have the answer to these questions, maybe because you don't. This is why the worldview you possess is causing you problems. Where did I come from? And if you start to answer where did I come from, you can't help but throw into that area, who is God? Who is God? If I went up to you and I said, I want you to define God and give me two examples. Now feel the pain starting to be in the cerebral cortex of your brain. By the way, don't waste any energy trying to answer that because that's just a benign question. There is no answer to that. Who is God? Give me two examples. What I have seen on theological exam before through some of the training and stuff we've had, is that God is perfect. Explain. That'll hurt your head in seminary school. God is perfect. Explain. How do you deal with that? God is the only being that his entirety and existence is not contingent upon anything or anyone else. God is because God was. 
He is the self-existing one. Let me tell you how the old church used to say it. God's God all by himself. You ever heard that one? God don't need anybody or anything to be more godly. God pre-existed time. God is God by himself. He doesn't need anything to sustain him. He has always been. He has no beginning and he has no ending. He is the all self-existent one. He's God. The Bible doesn't try to explain God. It starts off in Genesis. We'll get to that in a moment. But it just says, in the beginning, God. I love that, don't you? It doesn't try to explain or give you some reason. It just, bam, there he goes. He shows up in the beginning, God. And listen, if everything in your life doesn't begin with God, you don't have the right beginning. In origin, who, where did I come from? Who is God? Number two is meaning. What is the meaning of life? That's, the, that's probably the toughest one. What's the meaning of life? What am I here for? What's my purpose? Now, let me say this to you. If you don't answer this one correctly, then all the other questions are pointless. If you don't understand, number two, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose? Then there's no point in asking any other questions. Number three, morality. What, what is really good? What is really evil? Is there good? Is there evil? And destiny, number four, what happens when I die? So who is God? My answer to this question, who is God, is now much different than it was 30 years ago. Because the God I was raised and taught and told to believe in is not the God that I now bow my knee to and worship today. The God that I used to was introduced to was a God of judgment, condemnation, a God that I was always trying to please, never being able to. He was a God that I didn't think, you know, loved me or even liked me very much, depending on how well I had done that day or that week. He was also a God that I was fearful of, and I was terrified of dying because only then would I find out if I made heaven or not. And when I went up before him in fear and trembling as they played the movie screen behind me of all my secret sins before the world to see, it's what they preached to me in church, and then I would see if I was on the right hand or left, if I was a sheep or a goat, if I made it to heaven, or if I was condemned to hell. That's the God that I was introduced to. And yet, as bad as that introduction is, I still yielded my life to Him. As I looked around, I didn't see an alternative. I didn't see a God number two or a door number two, you know, choose this one if you don't like that one. It was either God or the devil, you know, so I'll take the lesser. What a really sad way of looking at God, but that's not the God that I look to now. I don't see God. Somebody the other day, they posted something on Facebook, and I'm out there now with the rest of y'all. And uh, anyway, but somebody, you know, you just see these people like, you know, when I was in school, two, two boys would be kind of bowing up one another, and one guy walk in the middle and put his hand out and says, best man spits in my hand. And, of course, one of them, you know, or both, they're going to go to spit, and that guy's going to pull his hand back. They're going to spit on one another, and they go fighting. You know, you don't remember that? Maybe we was just around a weird bunch. That's how they did it, okay? I see that on Facebook where people try to start a fight. And so just the other day, this guy posted, you know, well, can you, can you really receive, you know, from a preacher that doesn't wear a suit, you know, suit and tie, can you receive from him? And I was like, spit on my hand, now we got the fight going on Facebook. So, you know, that's, because I am a preacher, I just was compelled to read the comments, and the more comments I read, the angrier I became. And so you had those four, you know, the, the, unless the preacher's in a three-piece suit with a tie, you can't receive from him. Unless, unless um, you know, and I really didn't find anybody in that whole long section that said they could receive, and it was all like pro-suit. <laughs> See, I'm kind of halfway. I got a coat on for you, so I'm going to mix I'm mixing, you know, suit and casual. I don't care, whatever. I'm just as comfortable either way. It doesn't matter to me. Sometimes I wear a suit. You know why? Because I want to and Jill forces me to. <laughs> if I could wear a suit like Ron Butler, I'd have one on every Sunday. But I just can't, I just can't do it like that. I can't, I can't, I can't do it like that. I, I'm, I was at a at a place the other day and uh, waiting to pick up a, a pizza. And uh, so at this place, they had a bar. 
And so I was, that's the only place to sit, so I was waiting on my pizza. And sitting right next to me was a couple. And I introduced myself to them, and, or they introduced themselves to me, or we just looked at one another and shook hands, and so it started. And, uh, in fact, I, as far as I know, they could even be here. But uh, just sharing with them, and I, 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 uh, I invited them to church. It's something I rarely do. Not, you know, I, I, my wife knows I really doesn't do that much. Because I'm not wanting to you know, you know, shove it. I don't want to be the first thing out the gate, you know, kind of deal. Uh, it's hard for me to talk to people about the Lord because I am suspect because I'm a pastor. But because talking to this guy, and he introduced me to his wife, and just a, a, a precious a young couple, and uh, actually just moved uh, into our neighborhood, and uh, he's from Pensacola, she's from Mississippi, and just, uh, you know, just we were just chatting, but then it got around to, what do you do? So here I go. I'm a pastor. Now, where do you pastor? I pastor Grace Point Church in Valdosta. So now I have to invite you to church because if I don't invite you to church, then I fear that you might think I won't invite you to church because or I have maybe have some reason. And it just happened to be that this was an African-American couple. So I don't want to, you not to invite you and then the, the enemy to allow some kind of fiery dart to hit your mind. Well, that guy didn't invite me because I'm this or I'm that. Because we all know that we all that. <laughs> we stew. We potatoes, carrots, mushrooms, gravy, meat, we all love it in one pot. And I love that, and we should never take that for granted. And by that, I don't mean that any other church that is not multicultural, multiracial is wrong and we're right. I don't mean that at all. But I'm not going to apologize for what we are. And God has called us, and that's always been my heart, and that's the kind of church I left that came here to pastor, is a multiracial, multicultural church. And that doesn't happen just because you decide that to happen. And you can't have, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be in the heart of the leadership. It's got to be in the heart of the people to have that. And, and, and in times, it, it works the other way. I've had people I've invited, and they've came, or either, well, they, they say it like this. They've came, and they didn't come but one service because we had too much color. Either too much white, too much black, too much Hispanic, too much whatever. I ain't much I can do with people like that. I'm not going to be able to help you much. But, but, but I invited them. I said, I want you to come. And, and I said, uh, you know, I just said, I, all I said to them is I said, we are, we are a very diverse church. And I said, uh, you can go to uh, gracepointvinosta.com. So while I was talking to the husband, the wife on her iPhone popped it up, and she held up, and it was a picture of Jill and I on the introduction page. And she says, is that your wife? And I said, it better be. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed like you laughed. And, and uh and I said, we'd love to have you guys come and be with us at Grace Point. Because this is, this is what God's made us to be, like it is in Revelation. He said, I saw every kindred nation, ethnos, and tongue worshiping around the throne of God. And when there's so much hatred and so much anger and so much stuff goes on outside, isn't it wonderful that we can come into this building on this property and in this campus, and we can see white, black, Hispanic, all worshiping one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Come on, give God praise for that. It is such a blessing. It is such a blessing. And so my life has changed so much by the grace message. Um, grace has re revealed to me a much clearer view of who actually the God of the Bible really is. The mixture of law and grace and man's religion and traditions really distorted my view of God. And I'm not really mad and angry, a little bit I am, but, but, but the people didn't do it with intentionality. I was, uh, last year, about this time, I was meeting with a doctor in Tifton and never had met him before, referred to him, and I went into his office to see him, and as soon as I looked at him, he looked, he said, Dale Young, I'd never even seen this guy, never even heard of him until my Family practitioner referred me to him. And so he said, Dale Young, he said, I was just listening to you last week on a CD. And uh, somebody had shared a CD with this, with this cardiologist, and he, was, he had been listening to me. And he said, uh, this is what he said to me, one of the first things out of his mouth. He said, you seem to be a little bit ill, uh, based you know, what religion has done to you. And I said, that, that, you picked that up out of my sermon, huh? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, rightly so. I don't know what sermon he was listening to, but I said, yeah. I said, religion has kind of done a number on me because it made me view my father not in the way in that Facebook thing. Can you preach in the suit, not see what? 
and, and, and we were talking about it. I, it, was on my, it, was, it was on my nerves so bad. I mentioned it in the staff meeting last week. And we were talking and we were sitting in the office. And, it's, you know, and one guy, you know, he waxed eloquent as he said, you know, if you was invited to the White House to meet the president, would you go up there in jeans and a regular shirt or would you wear a suit? It's like he, like, you know, and then, and then people were just like high-fiving him on Facebook. You know, that, yeah, that shut him up. I mean, that way, I mean, you know, you should re respect, wear a suit. And, uh, and so we were sitting in the office back here, and, and I said that. And I said, I would do that if the president was my daddy. And that's the difference. See, those people that's working the suit thing, I'm not against the suit. You're missing my point if, you, if you're getting hung up there. The point is, God is not my judge now. He's my father. I'm not his servant. Listen, another message, another time. I'm not a soldier. How you need to be a soldier when the battle's already been won? If the battle's won, we don't need soldiers. So some of you either, I'm a soldier of the Lord in the army of God, really. And I know right now you're trying to think that I've just blowed it and preaching heresy. Paul told you to have the attitude of a soldier the heart of a soldier, to endure suffering as a soldier, have the discipline of a soldier. But God's not called you to be a soldier. God's not called you to be a servant. God's not called you to be those things. He's called you to be a son or daughter of the Most High God because you've got a Father that loves you. Amen? And you're not waiting for the judgment to see if you made it. You're already there. You're seated in Christ in heavenly places. Come on, give him some praise. Listen, the revelation that you and I carry of God is the most important revelation that you have in all of your life because the implications of your concept of God reach into every area of your life. So listen, if you change your concept of God, then you just changed your life because you just changed your worldview. And what you're going to find out is God will be more real to you and you'll find out that God is a lot more accessible to you. And you don't run from him when you sin, you run to him. You don't hide like Adam and Eve and did, you run to Papa because it's a safe place. Come on now. So in the beginning, it just says God created the heavens and the earth. So who is God? We see God just splash on the pages of Genesis, and we know from reading that first verse that our God is a creator. And that we also can conclude that he was around before the world existed. So in other words, as I said earlier, he pre-existed the heavens and the earth. The second verse in Genesis 1 and 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. What does this reveal us, to us about God? It reveals that God is spirit. And that He moves in and out of time and eternity. And, but He is off from time. But God created time as a temporary interruption in eternity. See, listen, listen to this statement. Eternity must inform time, not time inform eternity. That's how you have to think about things. Eternity must inform time. Time cannot inform eternity. Let's say it another way. If, if, if eternity is the anvil and time is the hammer, the hammer will wear out and be thrown away long before the anvil is even, the anvil will be there. Do, do you understand? So our view must be from an eternal perspective. And so Genesis 1 and 3 says, Then God said, when he saw that darkness and chaos and emptiness, God said something about it. What do you say when all you see around you is darkness, emptiness, confusion, chaos? What do you say? What do you say when all you see in your life is darkness, Depression, despair. What do you say out of your mouth? When, are you like a news reporter? Do you simply just reflect the, the environment that you see? Are you, are, 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 do you, do you, are you like a thermometer? Do you just report to us what we already know, what temperature it is? It's hot in here, I know. It's cold in here. Or are you a thermostat? Do you know if the room is 90 degrees and you want it to be 72, you don't need a thermometer, you need a thermostat. I wish I could get some help this morning. And then you have to, with intentionality, decide what you want. And then you have to, by faith, move. Now, how can I move a little dial or turn a dial or whatever you've got and move it to 72? Does it happen instantly? Do you immediately go from 90 to 72? 
Neither will your office environment, your home environment, your marriage environment, your church environment. Whatever atmosphere you're trying to change will not change instantly. But I promise you it will never change until you desire and recognize that it needs to change. If you don't like the atmosphere of your marriage and in your home, change it. If you don't like the atmosphere of your working around, working, change the atmosphere at your office. Change the atmosphere of where you live. Change the atmosphere of where you worship. Because if you change the atmosphere, you know what will happen? The climate will change. Oh, I, this is another sermon, but I'm just going to dabble in it. But if the climate changes and if, it, if we can sustain climate change long enough, then we'll get culture change. We, 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 we'll make a lasting change. There's a reason in Hawaii they wear, you know, Bermuda shorts and flower shirts. Because that's the climate there. And because the climate has lasted so long, those people have adapted a culture. And they live that culture. See, God wants the culture to change. In 1982, I think it was, my wife and I, we, we won a trip for the sales company we worked for. Anyway, we went on a cruise to the Bahamas. Not far, but we went. We thought it was far back then. But we went there, and we went to uh, Freeport. We went to Nassau. And it was weird for this South Georgia boy because, you know, everybody spoke the king's English. You know what I'm talking about? They drove on the wrong side of the road. Because I rode with a taxi driver and I thought he was going to kill us. Till I realized we're riding on the left side of the road, not the right side of the road. They stopped for tea four times a day. All the police looked like the police in London. And they talked like, and they said, uh, jolly O and bloody well and good day and all that stuff. And, and this was all these people that lived in the Bahamas. That's how they talked. Why? Because... The Bahamas, not now, but was colony of Great Britain. It was a colony. So what happens in the colony? You turn everybody into the colony just like they are in the homeland. I ain't talking about the Bahamas. We're here to colonize the earth. We're to speak the king's language. We're to adapt the culture of where we come from. We're to infect the environment. And even it doesn't matter if it's in the Bahamas, far away from England, we're to make you feel like you're at home in England. You can have tea and crumpets and tea and biscuits. And when they say biscuits, they don't mean I found out the hard way they ain't talking about a South Georgia cathead. Some of y'all don't even know what that is. Y'all need to get to the country more where y'all can say amen when I preach. But when they said, would you like a biscuit? I thought, well, it's the middle of the day, but I'll try one. They hand me a cookie. A little cookie, too. Not a big, fat chocolate chip cookie. Just a little cookie. But, I, but it was strange, but that as a, was a colony of England, of Great Britain. We're to colonize. You're an ambassador here. You're, you're, we're to colonize and represent our father, the, the king. And so God says something when he sees darkness. And then what he said in verse 3, let there be light. And then and it says, and there was light. Verse 4, and God, listen to this, and God saw the light. I've shared this with you. I want you to get this. God saw the light. See, some of you will look at darkness, and by faith you will speak, let there be light. But then you don't see the light. Let me put it another way. Some of you will see cancer, and you will see that darkness. And you will speak health and healing to that person, but yet you don't see health and healing. Therefore, it don't manifest. See, when God said in darkness, let there be light, God didn't echo what he saw. He went into the opposite of what he saw because he wanted the opposite of what he saw. And when he saw confusion, chaos, emptiness, and darkness, God said, that's the clue to me. To, why? Because the Holy Spirit is hovering over. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is hovering over every place of darkness and chaos and confusion in your life and in this world. The Holy Spirit, you may not can see him, but he's brooding over. He's just hovering over those places of darkness. And what he's waiting on, he's waiting on somebody with earthly authority, with earthly authority to stand there and speak words, faith-filled, believing the word of God, and, and say, let there be light. Let there be healing. Let there be deliverance. Let there be provision. God wants you to say something out of your mouth because that's how God's power op operates is through spoken words, faith-filled words 
Can you say amen? So you got to say something when you see something that you don't want. You got to open your mouth. And you can't be a poly parrot just echoing what I taught you on Sunday. You got to believe it in your heart. You have to have faith filled words. And so if you're going to say, let there be light, even if you don't immediately see the light, you see the light. He said that God saw the light, and it was good. And look what happened. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. You got to call the light something. You got to call yourself something. Call yourself healed. The church, we're still looking forward to healing. We're believing that maybe God will heal us one day. But all your healing is this way, to the past. The Bible never refers to the healing as something out there, possibility in the future. By His stripes, you were healed. When were we healed? 2,000 years ago, by His stripes. That's when the healing price was paid. It's up to you and I through faith in God's grace and goodness to draw on that account and by faith receive our healing. Amen. So God called the light day and darkness He called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. Now listen, nine times in the first chapter of the Bible, it says, then God said. Nine times, first chapter. Are we learning anything about who God is? Then God said. So you got to say something. And when you say, let there be light, then you need to see the light by faith. And if you'll see it, then focus on the light and don't focus on the darkness that you may presently with the physical eyes still see. Anybody follow me this morning? Because, listen, because faith with God will divide the light from the darkness. It will divide the cancer cells from the normal cells. Let me tell you something else about God that we learned in God's creative order. That you and I were both created and formed. You can take the first chapter of Genesis and teach how you got here one way. And you can take chapter 2 and it seems to contradict how you got here based on chapter 1. But the problem with us is we don't understand that God both created man. Man comes in two models, male and female. That's all. I see a boulevard I'd like to turn on and take, but I will resist. It's Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Steve. Man comes in two models, male and female. Uh, God, verse 27 of chapter 1, God created, created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Here's your two models, male and female, he created them. Okay. Genesis chapter 2 says, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now listen to me. God created you out of nothing, but your spirit and soul came from him. Your body came from dirt and was formed. Don't ever confuse your spirit with your body. If I had time, this is why so many people misunderstand the message of grace, because they don't understand how that even in this body, fleshly body formed from dirt, that is not perfect in our flesh, yet we are perfect in our spirit. That don't always behave righteously, but have been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus in our spirit. And if you don't understand the difference in those two, you're never going to accept the message of grace because you will think that we're lying. The Bible says that if you've been born of God, that you cannot sin. It's impossible for you to sin. That hurts your head and people try to come up with religious ways to explain that in 1 John. But you can't sin because your, your spirit man, born again, cannot sin. Because you've been joined and made one spirit with Christ. If you could sin in your spirit, then that would make Christ a sinner. Preach it, Brother Dale, I believe I will. See, this leads to the second question, why? What's God's intention in, in creating humankind? If God didn't need us, what motivated God to, to create us? Let me ask you this. When God created man, did God, did God know that man would sin and he would have to die on the cross for man? See, I used to see the cross as the greatest expression of God's love, but now I see God's creation as an equal expression of his love. Because when God created man, he knew man would fail and falter him, and he already had the provision because Revelation says that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God had already made provision. So when God created man, it was an expression of his great love for man. See, this is about purpose. 
One thing's been going on a lot lately, terrorists have been using automobiles as weapons. And if you take an automobile and you see a bunch of pedestrians on the sidewalk and you aim at them and mow them down with your automobile and you kill 15 or 20 people, you cannot go to the automobile maker, the manufacturer, and blame them for that accident. They're going to tell you that's not the purpose of that automobile. But when you take something and you make it and force it into something that it was not made for, it was not its purpose, you defile it. And when these humans, when we do things that is not according to God's design and purpose for our lives, you can't go back and blame God and say it's God's fault that I'm like this or it's God's fault that I behaved in such a manner. Because you are moving outside of purpose. Genesis 2 and 15 said, Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to, uh, to tend it and to keep it. The word tend means to work it. And so God took man. Let me tell you what happened. Before man got in the garden, Eden was created by God. Eden. Everybody say Eden. Paradise. God made it first. And so in other words, God put man in what he had made for him. God, in other words, did not allow man to define what the garden would look like or be like. Eden, listen to me if you can receive this, Eden is really more of a place, more of a, a presence and a place. It's the place of God's presence. It's the atmosphere of God. And so all of us were created to live in the environment that Adam was placed in. You know that Adam, when he went into the garden, he didn't have to fast, sing, pray, worship, work up the praise team, try to get his praise on. He didn't have to do nothing. He, he, he was in the environment of God. Nobody even had to, nobody, he didn't have to wait to the third song, no song. He didn't have to, oh God, would you, could you please come on now? I mean, none of that. Can you imagine that? See, God always makes the place before he makes what's going to live in the place, the environment. Do you, you understand that? So, when, so, so God speaks, remember he speaks. So when God got ready to make the fish, what did he speak to? To the waters. And he commanded fish. Is that right? If I say something in the Bible, y'all just grunt, amen. When God got ready to make the trees and the herbs, what did he speak to? He spoke to the soil, to the ground. And it brought forth herbs and trees. Is that right? When God got ready to make stars, planets, moons, galaxies, what did God speak to? He spoke to the heavens. And, and, and stars formed, and planets formed, and they're still forming. And galaxies, God spoke to the heavens. But when God got ready to make man, what did he speak to? He spoke to himself. God said, let us make man after our image. So if you want to kill a tree... Just remove it from its source. Pull it from the soil. Let it lay there a while. It'll die. If you want to kill a fish, take him out of his source of life. Take him out of the water. He'll lay there and die. If you want to remove a star, take it out of the heavens. It'll become a fallen star. It'll burn up and be no more because you took it out of his source. If you want man to die, take him out of Eden. Take him out of the environment. Take him out of the presence of God. Remove him from his creator where he has life and he will wither away, malfunction, and die. God is your God. God is your life. God is your source. So, this is interesting to me. God made the garden and told Adam to work. Now, some of you need to understand this because you're really mad because you think Adam and Eve screwed up and that's why you got to get up in the morning and go to work. Work is not part of the curse. You're not cursed because you got to go to work. See, I know you think if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, you'd still be naked, naming bugs and eating grapefruit. But that's not the story. That's not how it goes. Okay? Now listen to me. Listen, very important. Work is not your job. I said work is not your job. How many? Adam didn't have a job. What company did he work for? I'm talking before. What did he, who did he work for? What company? He didn't. He worked for God, IBM. No, he didn't work. He, 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 he had work, but he didn't have a job. Now listen, job prepares you for your work. Let's take Jesus. Jesus had a job. What was his job? Carpenter's son. But his job prepared him for his work. What was his work? To do the work that he said the Father sent him to do. Jesus said in John 17, Father, I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. Jesus was always talking about his work. He said, he said my father works, and I've been working since I've been here. And me and the Father do always work. I'm not talking about works for acceptance. I'm not talking about working so God will like you better. That's not the message of God. But I'm talking about that you were, you were created. Your, your purpose is your work. 
And, and so your job is what you are paid to do. Your work is what you were born to do. Your, your job is your skill, but your work is your gift. You can be fired from your job, but can't nobody fire you from your work. I, I, you can retire from your job, but you can't retire from your work. You, you, you don't go to work. You manifest your work on your job. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Jobs are temporary. Work is permanent. <laughs> work is your purpose. You were born because of purpose. You weren't born to find your purpose. That in, in people's shops, they have tools that I've seen before lying around. Tools. Physical tools. And I've looked at some tools and I have not a clue what that tool is used for. Right? Now, why is that tool there? Did that tool just make itself? Y'all better help me. I to go faster if you help me. That tool had a what? A creator. And somebody created that tool with what in mind? Purpose. And even though you walk in that shop and you don't have a clue what that tool's for, I promise you somebody that does know what it was for, the person that made it. Now when I look at some of you, I don't got a clue what you were made for. Because you are some strange looking tools to me sometimes. Come on, don't get offended now. I'm just trying to see if you li listen. But every, listen, every one of you were born with a purpose. In other words, God had something in mind when you were created that he wants you to do. And it's not your job. It's not your job. See, my job for 20 years as a paramedic helped me to do my work. That wasn't my job, but that wasn't my work. I'm doing my work right now. But my, my, my job prepared me for my work. It helped me in my work. When I sold cookware, you don't understand how shy I was. You don't understand that I'd take a zero before I get in front of people. You don't understand what a nervous little boy that's talking to you now. You don't understand my parents are sitting there. You don't understand that seventh grade, they're running tubes down my stomach. I'm so nervous. I, I can't go out to eat even when Jill and I were first married. I can't go out with two or three couples and eat because I'm so nervous and I'm so timid and I'm so messed up and jacked up that I would just take a fork and stir the food up and then lay a napkin over it like dead on arrival because I'm not going to eat in front of people because I'm nauseated and I'm, I'm nervous and I'm just, I'm, I'm just messed up, man. You don't know that. You're looking at me like, I, <laughs> I know Jesus is the, is the answer. And, and, and so when we were first married, I mean, and Jill would get so aggravated because I, I didn't want to go nowhere. I didn't want to go out to eat with people. And more of the people there, the worse it was. You don't know who you're talking to, who you're listening to. But God can change you. Can you imagine God looking down and calling a guy like that to be a preacher? <laughs> you don't know. We, we, we got invited to a cookware party one time, and they, anyway, we were, we, we, I was praying about an in, another income where my wife could quit her job and she could be home to, to raise the children. And I'm not knocking you, I'm just saying that's our story. And we went to a cookware dinner, you know, town crowd, five-ply, multi-core, stainless steel, T304 surgical steel, glory to God, ain't it pretty? I still remember some of it. Me that timid, even at that point, my, with my wife's encouragement and us desperate need for income so she could stay home with the babies, I took a part-time sales job selling cookware. I was in the pot business. I sold pots. Imagine that one edited on the internet. Um, anyway, but... Let me tell you just quickly what that did, two long stories. But it, it made me learn to stand in front of people. It made me learn to talk to people. It made me learn to go when I felt like going and go when I didn't feel like going. It, it, it helped me a lot. So your purpose, you were born because of purpose. Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me make this statement. You're not here as an experiment. You're here on assignment. Jesus came here, and you came here. Let me say it like this. Jesus came here with his work inside him. You believe that? 
He wasn't to be a carpenter all his life, was he? But he had a season that he was to be a carpenter. You came here, and I came here with, with our work inside of us. And so you got to understand that when God made man, your work is on the inside of you. Let, let me just make this statement here, because we're right here in Genesis. Then after Adam is there and told to work and to, to tend it, which means work, and to keep it, which means guard the garden, then God says, now that you're working, listen to me, now that you're working and you, you know what your work is, and I've told you to guard it, now you're ready for your wife, so now I'm going to bring Eve along. Now, some of you women are really messed up when you marry men that don't know what their work is. In other words, let me say it like this. If you're going to marry a man, make sure that he's in Eden, which is God's presence, and make sure he's got a job to job. Y'all ain't going to shout on that, are you? Now, if your man going to stay home all day and play on PS4 while you work, and that makes you happy, then knock yourself out, but don't schedule counseling appointments with me to talk about it. I'm warning you up front, that ain't going to be fun long. And, it's, and as funny as that may sound, not in this church, but in my previous church, I actually pastored that very scenario. This brother had a knockout beautiful wife, really. Brother stayed home on the PS3, 2, whatever it was back then. And we kept trying to tell him, and he had contemporary friends his age that was trying to tell him. And for long, she got sick of it. She'd be married to someone else today. Last accounts I heard, he's still by himself. And I guess him and that PS4. You give me a pretty woman or a PS4, I'm going to put the woman every time. You know what I'm saying? So you go and stay home and play with your little PS4 if you want to. Me and Sister Jill go into the house. Right there had been a good place to just drop the mic right there and let it hit the floor and walk off. That was a drop the mic moment right there. You know that's right. Listen to me. I got, I, I got to. Here comes Eve. Now see, some women, some of you are so frustrated because you are now married to a man who has a job but has not discovered his work. You are the helpmate. How is she going to help you if you ain't doing nothing? So if you have a person that's been assigned to help you and yet you're not doing nothing, then that person becomes very frustrated because they're wired to help you, but you ain't doing nothing. See, this is the real base root. See, some of you men, every man in here probably has been told, you're the head of the house. You know what that makes you think you are? The boss. That means you ain't married. Because your helpmate will help you to learn that ain't the way it is. Listen, boy, I'm, Crawford, are you praying for me? I'm waiting out there this morning. Listen, you're, you're not the head, which means the top of the pyramid. You are the foundation. You as the husband are the foundation. God is a master builder. So he started with what, Adam? That's foundational. So you're the bottom. You're not the top, dude. You're the support system. You're what's holding things up as God's holding you up. There's so much frustration in marriage. See, a woman is like an incubator. You give her seed, pardon me, you give her seed, sperm, she'll incubate it, she'll multiply it and give you a kid. Okay? You give her a house, she'll multiply it, incubate it, give you a home. You give her groceries, she'll multiply it, incubate it, give you a meal. You give her a word, she'll multiply it and give you a paragraph. All right, Steve Lee. Women be talking. Listen. I really need to get back to the notes. I would be. Might as well throw this last one in, Steve. I'm gonna, I'm, you give her frustration, she'll multiply it and give it back and give you hell. <laughs> <laughs> you can always tell what you're giving a woman by what you're getting back. I'm trying to help. The, I'm trying to help you, lady. I'm trying to help you. So if you don't like what you're getting from the woman, then you need to evaluate what you're giving to the woman. Y'all better shut up and praise the Lord for that one. Now, come on now. 
Man, I ain't going to get through with this. Let me just at least say something about morality. Because we're still talking about Adam and Eve. They sinned against God by choosing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you read that carefully, you'll see this is what Satan said to them. Satan asked a question. Remember the question? Hath God said, you shall not eat of the tree? And Eve said, God told us not to eat of it, not to touch it, not to look at it, so forth, so on. And she really misquoted a lot of God, a lot of what she said God didn't say. He didn't say, you know, none of those things like don't touch. She, she just mangled the word. But this is what happened. Satan said, he said, God, you, you'll not die. In other words, God's a liar. And you will be like God. Actually, the King James says, you will be God's. Little G. Knowing, listen, knowing good and evil. Now that Hebrew word knowing also means telling. Telling. So let's, let's read it like this and see if there's any revelation in this. Satan said to, to them, eat of this tree and then you will be a God. And you can say what is good and what is evil. That's really what happened. It was not them choosing the tree of knowledge of good and evil and there were good things there and there were evil things there. No, it was man becoming God, his own God. And now that man is deciding what is good and what is evil. Let me illustrate it like this. The apostle Paul, Saul, he's killing Christians, right? Killing Christians before his conversion. Did Paul think he was doing good or did he think he was doing evil? He thought he was doing good. It never entered his mind that he was doing evil. Yet he is murdering innocent Christians by, their, by his authority and even by his hand. He's murdering. And Paul thought, I'm doing good. But his good was evil. Holocaust, Auschwitz, death camps, 12,000 Jews being shaved, women's hair, Men's hair shaved off of them, all bald. Their hair is even stored today in Auschwitz behind a glass container. They would take that hair from those Jewish women and men and they would sew it into to, to, to make baskets and so forth out of it. Sell it in the marketplace. And they would be led into what they were told would be a shower. Bodies mashed together. 12,000 a day at Auschwitz, this death camp, were itemized as the gases was poured into those and they began to fall upon themselves by the thousands. Thousands. Not one of those people involved in that thought they were doing evil. None of those soldiers, nor Hitler, or any of his commanders thought they were doing evil. They all believed they were doing good. I say that not to shock you, but let you understand that that's the problem with that tree. Because now we decide what is good and what is evil. We become our own gods. We set the morality. Why, why, why is it that, you, you, know, I, I was watch, I, you know, I used to watch a lot more than I do now, but the animal shows, Discovery Channel, whatever, and, and the BBC did this thing on polar bears, and, and the polar bears are going after a long hibernation. They come out ravenous, man, and they're starving to death, and they're, they're lean, and they've been hibernating, and, and, and they go, a lot of them go after the seals, a lot of them go after the walruses. But, but you know which ones they go after? The baby ones. And so all of a sudden, they, um, this show when they're, the polar bear is trying to go after and he grabs this baby walrus and he just bites it and thrashes it about and you're seeing it. It makes you want to turn the channel, man. Or he grabs a baby seal and he's slinging it around and you see blood flying like that and then he's just gobbling up and that white polar bear that we think does all the Coke commercials, so cute, is now bloodied from eating the baby seal. Do you know one time years ago, this is not a fairy tale, I actually saw a car on, on the bumper sticker on either side. On one side, it had, it had save the seals. Not kidding this. On the other side, it said pro-abortion. Everybody has to have a cause. Why, why don't somebody, when they put the Discovery Channel on the polar bears smashing up the baby seals, why don't we ever go like timeout? Timeout. Um... Let's ask the polar bear 
or let's just ask the question. Just don't bother him. He's eating. Um, is it right, fair for the, Mr. Polar Bear to eat baby seal? Let, let me ask it this way. Is it right for the polar bear to eat somebody else's kid? But we don't ever pause to ask that, do we? Isn't that strange? Why don't we? Because the animal kingdom is a non-moral kingdom. And if you and I ever lose morality, we are simply trousered apes. And we decide abortion is good. But now don't kill a seal. That's bad. I want a house with wood, but don't cut that tree because there's an owl in it. That's good. That's bad. Let me ask you this. What do you think how this worldview affects everything? How do you see things? So it would be amazing to you how many things Christians see differently. That's good. No, that's bad. That's why we all vote differently. Because our worldview is different. We may worship in the same building. I want you to stay with me through this series because I'm going to I'm going to unpack some things that, that, that I've never said before, but I believe they'll help us to clarify a worldview and to get a biblical worldview. Do you know what we think? We think if we just say, I believe in Jesus, then we can do anything else we want to with the rest of our life as far as political, social, whatever, as long as I say I believe in Jesus. And that is not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that God brings and recognizes all the political, all the social, all the pressures of life, and in the middle of it stands Jesus. And he is the one and the only one that can clarify our view. I began this message with a question. My time's up. I'm going to have to end it with a question. I began with what's your worldview, but this is my, this is my final question. Do you know him? Do you know him? Is there a time in your life that you've bowed your, your knees before him and you have recognized and received him as God, Savior? Your righteousness, your peace, your forgiveness, your justification, your healing. You may not remember the day, but you can remember the experience. You can remember the moment, the moment that that happened. And I will say to you, that's one of the most important questions. Do you know, really know him? Are you born of the Spirit? Do you know him? And when you look at him, do you see him as your father? And no longer your judge because he has taken away your sins. Buddy, I want to tell you something that gives you power over sin. It's when I know that I am totally 100% forgiven. And I am 100% righteous before God now by the blood of Jesus. That annihilates the power of sin in my life. And it gives me such victory over it because the power of sin is the law. But the power of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Do you receive the word today? Won't you stand to your feet and give the Lord praise? Amen. Oh, I preach better than that right there now. You better give God some praise. <laughs> Come on. I guess it was them husband and wife comments I made, Ron. I don't know. Ministry team, come. I'm going to dismiss the church. But if you want prayer, I want you to know that we love you here at Grace Point Church. Man, we're honored that you're here. Hey, if you just want to come up and shake my hand and hug my neck or... Or tell me I hated that or I enjoyed it, whatever one. I, I would prefer the second. But, hey, I, I, I'd love to meet you. And I've been doing that for the last little bit. And I've met people that's been coming here for two years, never come up and shook my hand. I've never physically met them. I love doing that. If you want me to pray with you personally, I'll be glad to do that. I'll be honored to do that. But we're here to serve you, to pray with you, to believe God for you. Listen, that last question, if you don't know him, would you receive him this morning? Would you receive him right now? How do you do that, preacher? Like Paul told the man in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on Jesus, and you'll be saved. Just put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you're saved. Amen? It's not repeating a prayer. It's not being dunked under water. We believe in baptism. But it's just believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Amen? You received the word today. Are you encouraged? Did you learn something?
I did a little tweet. I only preach. I was doing it for some preachers. But I said, preachers, man, we're hope. We're hope dealers. And when people come to church, they need to have hope. There's enough of hopelessness outside these doors. But we need to have people encouraged. How many knows that Jesus Christ is called our blessed hope? He is our blessed hope. Amen. So, Father, we do thank you today. And I pray as we dismiss this congregation, not from your presence, but from this place. Lord, as they know that you always hear them, you're always with them. I pray if there's one here that couldn't answer that affirmatively, that they know you. I pray they would come and receive you today by faith, trust in you, believe in you, and let you, Lord God, live life through them, your life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. We love you. You guys won't pray.